I'm Matt Valley, and this is the Rock and Roll Research Podcast, where we share the super cool backstories and side gigs of the research and insights pros that you trust. Today's guest is Whitney Dunlap Fowler, who's a highly sought after independent brand strategist, cultural strategist, and semiotician at her own firm called Touch of Wit Creative. Now, I must say that the breadth and depth of her expertise is truly uncommon and very impressive. But outside of her consulting practice, she's also the founder of a networking community for multicultural market research and insights professionals called Insights in Color. And I'll let her tell you all about that and more on today's podcast. Welcome to the show, Whitney. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to have you. So I'm very glad that you've taken some time out of your day to chat with us today. So I'm just going to jump right into it because we've had a chance to talk a little bit here and I think you've had a very interesting path and route to a career in insights. And so I want to hear about that. So tell us about where you got started and, and how you got to where you are now. Sure. Well, um, I did not anticipate or think that I would actually be in this field. Um, what happened was I was a child artist, if you will. I drew all the time. I'm a, I'm a consummate Pisces. I drew, I played instruments, I did poetry, all Me these. Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, we have creative, you know, bones in us from birth. You, some of us, most of us. And uh, one day in high school, I'd made it all the way up to AP art. Um, and if you were to expand it to my apartment, you would see a lot of my artwork on my walls as well. Um, and my mom kind of just said uh, around the 11th grade, you need to figure out what you're going to do with your life in a way that's actually lucrative, um, <laughs> meaning to say that art is not the way. Um, and I don't remember, how, I don't know how the word she said, but it, I remember it's, it sent me into like a, a spiral. I was like, okay, what is, oh, I didn't think about my life beyond this. So what is that going to look like? And she didn't know this, but I ended up kind of doing these kind of the self-assessment of what am I interested in? What could I, what, what's my career going to be? Right. And one day I noticed, um, I lived in South Carolina at the time, that between the shows that we were watching, I was singing all the jingles of the commercials. In fact, one of the first jingles I ever learned was from Bilo. Um, mm-hmm. If you're looking for a price that's low, it's the one brand you can know, Bilo. I know the whole song. <laughs> like it's the first jingle I learned. And I remember saying, I should, I should do that. I should make commercials. You know, it wasn't about the jingles. It was about the fact that I loved them and they were quite memorable. So that kind of set mm-hmm. me off on Google was very nascent at that time. So uh, I was trying to Google, like, how do you become an advertising exec? How do you make commercials? And what I ended up learning <laughs> was that advertising firms existed in Chicago and, um, and uh, so I lived in Virginia at the time, not South Carolina, uh, mm-hmm. Chicago and New York. And uh, that that's where I needed to live. Now I'm a military brat. I was born in Germany. I lived in South Carolina, lived in Virginia. Moving was not uh, a foreign concept for me, but I learned really quickly that my life was not going to be in Virginia. So once I did that, I set my sights on Chicago just because I'd only been to New York once and I've been to Times Square and I thought who wants to live in Times Square? I was dumb. Um, so, <laughs> and so I went to, I, I set my sights on Chicago. Um, I purposefully went to a college that my friends did not go to. I said, you know, I need to go to a college that's predominantly white because I'm going to be living in cities and going into corporate spaces that don't look like where I, where I currently exist in this, in my high school. And then if I can make it in college in this way, then I can make it in corporate America. So I went to a small school called Long University, loved mm-hmm. it, great friends there. I uh, spent four years there, 
And shortly after that, um, about a year and a half later, had $5,000 saved up, paid off my credit card debt, packed a U-Haul, grabbed a car, moved to Chicago uh, to break into the advertising industry. It's <laughs> great. In 2008, at the height of the recession with no uh, friends, contacts, or friends. So um, that was another kind of humbling experience. I think you don't really know what a recession is when you're in your 20s. You're like, you hear these words and you don't know what that means for you. Right. So that dream, right, of being in corporate America, quickly, I quickly realized that's not how it goes. I think the myth of young adulthood is that you go to college, you do the thing, you graduate and you find a job. 2008 was kind of the first time where we realized actually that's not how it happens, especially in the face of a recession. Right. And have parents in corporate America. I had no one to kind of show me the way in. I had no contacts. So I basically struggled for two and a half years. Um, I had a good amount of administrative experience, which I'd started working for the city of Hampton in Virginia since um, probably sophomore year. So mm-hmm. I knew how to do that. I knew how to do AP and everything like that. And so uh, it took me a while to get on my feet. I was stuffing envelopes in Naperville, uh, Illinois for $12 an hour. Uh, and then I'd come home on the on Fridays, swift, quickly change clothes and go downtown to Chicago to work at Bed Bath & Beyond because that's where I was working before I moved to Chicago. Right. I worked there for $15 an hour. And that was a good amount of my experience in Chicago for a while until I got my first break at a digital agency. Mm-hmm. And I got in on the operation side. Got there, went into one to grad school at DePaul um, mm-hmm. for a little while as well, because honestly, it was more for the money <laughs> because I needed money from loans to live. Um, and the program was okay, but I, it wasn't it wasn't my forte. And kind of got, you know, kind of got on my feet after about a year, a year and a half, if you will, uh, of being in Chicago. The other thing that was playing on in the background was that my mom was very ill. I left Virginia at a time where she was uh, diagnosed with um, cancer and had been diagnosed with what I came to later know was terminal cancer for four oh. years. Um, and so I'm a twin, I have a twin brother. And what happened was I kind of got fed up because all of the responsibility of taking care of her fell on me for the years that I was in college. And, you know, my brother uh, went and found his high school sweetheart, married her, got a house and a dog. And I kind of said, listen, you found your life. You're, he was a police officer, you have your career my career is not in Virginia, so I need to leave. And I, and I up and left and it was my brother's turn to kind of take care of my mom. But all of that was happening while I was dirt poor in Chicago and just really kind of stressed out, you know, understanding what she was doing. And she ended up passing uh, while I was in Chicago uh, at the beginning of 2009, um, which, you know, was a blessing and a curse. I lost my best friend, but it kind of set me free from being tied to Virginia, if you will. Um, and it, it set me on my way. Um, so after that, after about a year and a half in Chicago, made great friends, finally kind of got my mojo going. I was in a job that um, ended up firing me just because they didn't want to pay for my role. Um, <laughs> and that's fine. They ended up hiring an intern. But I had already kind of had my eyes set on someplace else. Um, I have to tell you this. The way that I move in life is that I get a feeling. And I say, that's where I need to go. It's why I moved to Chicago, sight unseen. And then I was going to be moving to New York kind of in the same way. I had a friend who um, moved to New York and I went to go visit her. I went to Harlem to visit her. So this is like the first time I got to see how people live, not beyond Times Square. Right. And I said, oh, I could, I could live here, you know? And so once I got fired, uh, it happened around the same time that um, my, my program at, at DePaul was kind of ending for that semester. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, 
this is not gonna, I'm not gonna stay here. Chicago was also very segregated. It wasn't, it was a background that I wasn't really used to coming from military. So I kind of made up my mind that it wasn't the place for me to stay after two and a half years. I packed three duffel bags, got a one flight, one way ticket and um, used the um, compensation for my salary, my severance to pay up three months rent for my apartment in Chicago and said, well, I've got three months to figure it out in New York. And that's exactly what I did. I stayed on a couch for three months, starting in December of 2010. Um, It was a a big blizzard that year, by the way. Uh, (laughs) And I just put out, uh, put out um, uh, resumes everywhere. And the, one of the places I put out a resume was Cantor at Value. I had this epiphany um, before speaking to you that February is my transition month. It's my month where things tend to happen. Um, and so what happened was I had gotten an executive assistant position, which pays very well in New York. Mm-hmm. And I kind of decided that I was not going to be moving back to Chicago. Um, and I said, well, I don't have a full-time job yet, but I'm pretty sure my life is going to be in New York. So I flew back to Chicago in February and started packing up my apartment. I had gone on a couple of interviews with Kantar Added Value at that time. I didn't have a job offer. I wasn't really sure. Right. The last day in Chicago, I'm packing up my apartment. I've got the movers. You know, I found an apartment in New York um, somehow. I was making very little money at the time, but I found an apartment in New York. And the day that I was moving, was February 14th, 2011, uh, they called me and said, hey, we're going to give you this job offer. And oh, I was wow. like, all right, that's what it's going to be. <laughs> and so, <laughs> Happy and Valentine's like, Day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I started around President's Day, actually, um, that, that later on that month. And it was great. Um, so I started on the admin side. I was, I was a qualitative coordinator. And it was my job to really understand um, how to price out uh, and estimate um, qualitative requests uh, mm-hmm. on a global and on a global and domestic scale. I learned that job very quickly. So about a year, year and a half in, I decided I wanted to finish up what I started and go back to grad school. So I went to NYU, and it was a program that was more conducive to my learning style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that while you know eventually running the entire qualitative coordinating department because my predecessor had kind of left her role. Um, and our team was, uh, was nascent in how we did um, costing and scoping. And so I pretty much ran that department for three years, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> going to grad school full-time. Wow. It was a lot of work, but I loved it. I was able to put out fires in, by the day and use my cerebral brain by night, if you will. Yeah. All of my weekends were dedicated to either working out or homework or laundry. <laughs> <laughs> Got to fit that um, in somewhere. <laughs> I, yeah, and I took my vacation. Um, so basically, I took off time to write papers and to do my assignments, and then I'd return back to the office. So it was, it was two years of just grinding until I graduated. Um, once I graduated, we had gotten a new boss. Uh, my, her name was Helen Firth. Uh, she was replacing Marie Ridgely. Both, I'm saying their names because I'm lifelong friends with both of these women. Um, great women, great bosses. Um, yeah. But Helen um, Firth was flown in from London, and she kind of said, well, Whitney, what do you like to do? What do you think you can do? This was also another kind of life-spinning moment of what am I going to do with my life? I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I like. And so I remember I couldn't go home that holiday season. I I, I think I couldn't afford it. I was paid very little. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. And I was (laughs) was stuck on my couch. Um, It was a Christmas um, Eve kind of a weekend or something like that, a holiday season. I was stuck on my couch and I remember thinking, well, Whitney, what do you like to do? And at that point, I had kind of had a hobby of 
talking to my friends and being a bit of a life coach. I was really passionate about understanding the patterns in their lives, you know, who they dated, how they how they kind of went forward so that I could use that as a way of understanding the behaviors of other people. And I was like, well, I'm kind of into consumer behavior, you know, like if you want to make that into a thing. And then it kind of dawned on me that I could do that at added value. Because I, was, you have to understand, I graduated and I went back to my office and started cleaning out my desk. Because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's not here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but once I realized I was kind of in a position to do something that I already did as a hobby, right. I leaned into it. it. It didn't dawn on me immediately, but I kind of leaned into it went back to Helen and said, hey, you know, I'm interested in these things. I know we do cultural strategy here. I know we do brand strategy here. I want to talk about what that could look like for me. Mm-hmm. So Helen said, great. Uh, our, our industry is quite siloed, right? Um, so you're either quality or quanti or brand strategist or whatever that might be. Right. And so for me to be interested in everything was an anomaly. For me to move from the ops side the yeah. client side was even more of an anomaly yeah. you know so there was this whole big hubbub of like well, what is she gonna do is she good at client side what are, what are we gonna pay her like what is that gonna look like and I'm like guys it's it's not rocket science you know like it's it's just tell me what I need to do I'm a fast learner I think I've, I've, ta- I've you know shown that by now and I can do the work and so they basically started me on the bottom tier as an analyst and it was kind of a, you know, we went back and forth about salary because they were not willing to pay me anything more. <laughs> and I was like, if I do this, you need to accelerate me on a fast track. And that's actually what ended up happening. I learned my role very quickly. I was accelerating the next six months. And then the next six months, like I, I got on a very fast track path. I was very determined. So every time right. I spoke with Helen, I was like, all right, what's the next thing I need to do? What do I need to tick off? What's the next box, if you will? The role that was created for me was across brand strategy and cultural strategy. So I was a semiotician, but I was also learning to be a brand strategist, which was also um, not common at added value. You are either one or the other. Right. But it's the best. It was the best thing that could ever happen for me because I learned the ins and outs of everything, if you will. So as a, as a result, I can do a project from beginning to end, from stakeholder interviews and setting up the approach to doing the cultural insight strategy, doing the semiotics, overseeing the qual, overseeing the quant and pulling it all together and a final you know, package, if you will. So I learned the best way forward. And I did that for about five years. Um, I had a mentor at the time, Stephen Palacios, who mm-hmm. um, also helped me get into NYU. Like he signed, he did a, refer, a referral letter. And I kind of said, I'm interested in what you're doing because he was leading our multicultural practice at, at added value. And Stephen Palacios was, he, the way that our office was, he was never in for a while. We had a bit of a broken office at that time. And Marie Ridgely kind of said, okay, everyone needs to like come to the office and, and see people, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he met me finally. And he, I said, you know, would you be willing to be a mentor for me? He was like, I, I don't know what that looks like. I said, I don't know what it looks like either, but <laughs> I want to <laughs> do more of what you do. And he was like, all right, great. Steven is very great because he just believes you to be fully capable, even if you don't believe it yourself. And so one of the first meetings he took me to was uh, Essence Magazine, um, where I met with the head of Time Warner and the head of Essence Magazine. And I got to say, I was nervous. (laughs) He kept saying, oh, yeah, I mean, wouldn't you have talked about this? Wouldn't you go ahead? I was like, yep. I didn't say a word. I was, still, <laughs> I was I was very vocal with Steven. I didn't say a word in front of Time Warner or or Michelle um, at the time, who was the head of Essence. 
And it took me a while to find that confidence. But as a result of Stephen, I worked on a lot of multicultural projects for the first time. And when he left, his spot was vacated. Mm-hmm. And I kind of put my hand up and said, who's going to be doing this work? And uh, after a couple of conversations, Cantor Added Value uh, put me in that role. Um, not as a more gen- junior person, Stephen was a VP at the time. And right. so I knew coming into that position, in my mind, the secret sauce of the formula was recruiting younger people of color. As I didn't want to be responsible for being the only person both doing the, 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 the briefs and the proposals and doing the work because I would have been inundated. You know what I right. mean? So I was like, we need to create some kind of initiative to recruit people of color into Cantar because I can't be the only one. I, and I was the only one for a very long time, Matt. But this is where the idea for Insights in Color came, came to be. So it was my idea. I did it under the guise of Cantar and it was a networking recruitment initiative where we uh, brought people, yeah, we brought people into the floor, onto the floor who were younger. And, you know, our industry doesn't do this. We don't do sexy mix and mingles, if you will, especially not for people of color. And if we do, it's usually all white and it's like an industry kind of, you got to pay to be there, if you will. Mm-hmm. Our event was free. It was very grassroots. We brought alcohol to the floor. We had some music. I had a friend do some um do some, do some music, like a DJ mix, if you will. And it was just a socializing thing. We, and eventually we had the presidents of each of the companies. So we we were all on the same floor. So it was added value, futures, Millwood Brown, everybody. Everyone was on the same floor. We came in, met the people, and it was a successful event. We did two women yeah. um, every year in March until um, I kind of decided to leave the company because at that point I had three different titles. I was very tired and I was yeah. like, for one of them <laughs> and I've been with the company for six and a half years and you know yeah. there's a bit of a stalled um career growth sometimes that happens when you stay with the company for that long I needed to experience life outside that bubble and it was sure. a very supportive family bubble but I needed to go on and do my own thing mm-hmm. so uh I left uh, I made that decision February 2017 it's February again <laughs> <I know. laughs> I left um, shortly after that, actually. I, I, I ended up interviewing that, um, that winter with uh, Kelton Global. Okay. I decided to only lean in one of my directions, which is cultural insights, cultural strategy. I really love cultural insights, and that was the one thing I just kind of wanted to get better at. And I did that at Kelton Global um, and kind of shifted the way they did semiotics there. They use semiotics as an insight. I use it as a strategy pillar and did a lot of work there um, for a while, but I eventually became burnt out um, and decided, it wasn't really sure if I liked my work anymore, actually. I got so burnt out that I became numb to the work that I was doing. I mean, Matt, I was delivering projects and getting standing ovations from clients and feeling nothing. Like I remember remember everyone saying, oh, this was great. And I was like, I really don't want to talk about it. I don't, I'm not passionate about this anymore. Yeah. Um, What happened was, Someone, and I know I'm sorry, I'm droning on here, but someone gave <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> someone contacted me, a smaller uh, Black-owned agency contacted me and said, hey, would you be willing to do some freelance? Like something really tiny that a, a regular agency wouldn't have, you know, looked at, if you will. And I was like, sure, let me take a look at this. And I did it on my own time. I created the parameters around it. It was very easy. It was like an in and out kind of a job. And I was like, oh, Maybe this is maybe this is what I need to do. Maybe I need to just do it on my own. Maybe I'm tired of doing it for other companies. 
you know, and it, and I have to be honest, Matt, it took me a while to have this realization. Yeah. The year of um, 2018. So year 2017 was my numb year. The year of 2018 was me searching for what the next thing was. And I was going on interviews. I was trying to figure this out. And something happened that never happened. I was getting down to the final rounds of interviews and not getting the jobs. And I, and I know that sounds really cocky. But I get jobs, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's not that if I'm getting to the final rounds, like it's usually a thing where it, it gets, I'm the person, you know what I mean? And I kind of had this epiphany, like, you know, maybe my next chapter isn't in corporate America. Maybe my next chapter really is like run by me. And this is kind of the universe saying, let's maybe step out of this with me and do your own thing. And I fought it. Um, there were so many things telling me. So the freelance thing, I had come, people coming to me saying, hey, I want to be a freelancer. I think we can do this together. There yeah. were many things happening in the same year pointing me to freelance. And I was just like, no, I want to steady check. Why would I do that? Why would I make my life that hard? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and then finally. It's a tough road. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was like, I got to, you know, I have to be, I have to find my own clients and do this stuff, if you will. And so finally what happened was I had a long conversation with God. So once I have these moments of like, I'm at a crossroads and everything's pointing me in the same direction, God kind of just sits on my shoulder and just like, hey, what are you going to do here? And so I finally said it out loud. Um, And at the time I was going through this kind of a mental crisis with Kelton and they were really, I have to be honest, really patient with me. Allison Servi was my boss. She was helping me work it out too. She was like, what do you want to do? I was like, I don't know, Servi, but I, was, I don't know Allison, but I'm, I'm quite miserable. And she they hired me a, a career coach and everything. They were trying to help me figure it out just as much. Mm-hmm. And um, one day I kind of just said to God, like, I know what you want me to say here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not willing to say it. I just need some time. And so I couldn't verbalize it. So I wrote it down in a journal. Um, I kind of wrote, you know, I think the future is me starting my own business, if you will. Um, Then what happened was with the career coach, I actually told her on one of our last sessions, like, I think I need to start my own business. And it was the first time I said it out loud. And she was like, well, let's talk about what that would look like for you. Um, And we kind of discussed it. And she was, she embraced, you know, the conversation. And what happened after that was I left the building and I called my dad. My dad and I were not the closest, but I was like, dad, I think I'm going to do something crazy. And he was like, what? I said, I think I'm going to quit my, my, my job and start my own business. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah, it's the first time I've said this out loud to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to understand my background is military. It's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, where you're going, you know, the trajectory of your life, you know, no one had done what I'd done. I was the first in my family to go to college. I was the first to move away the way that I did. I was just moving places based on feelings. And this was another feeling situation. Right. That ludicrous because you spend all your life trying to get a salary number. And I'd finally gotten there and I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I leaving the thing that I dreamed about? You know what I mean? Right. And so uh, he was like, well, baby, you know, if anyone can do it, you can. And so that kind of set the trajectory. I remember filing for my LLC in June and thinking, "Mm, I'm not going to commit to it. I'm just going to put the paperwork in. And eventually I kind of said, all right, well, this is what I'm going to do. And Matt, when I tell you, once I said it out loud, yeah, oh God, all right, this is the direction I'm going to go. The weight of anxiety just lifted off of me. It was like, it was always... it was almost like it was the way that I was always intended to go. 
I felt at ease. And I wasn't even, I didn't even know where my money was going to come from. I was so not stressed. (laughs) I was waking up so happy. Like the bitterness had left and everything. I was like, you know, I don't know what this is going to pan out to be. I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I'm announcing this new road. And it's the only way that I can go, if you will. I'm going to just say, this is a journey I'm going to embark on. And if I'm good at it, then great. And if I'm not, then that's also okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I started Touch of Wit uh, September 1st, 2019. And I've kind of been running ever since. Wow. (laughs) So that's quite a story. Um, (laughs) So many twists and turns and inflection points and uh, areas, times when you had to really kind of think about what you're doing and what's going to happen next. It's, it's, it's a great story. And it's really interesting how quickly you progressed once you made the decision to get into insights, how quickly you progressed in, into that space. And so um, I'm wondering, you know, as you kind of think back on your whole experience, what are some of the, the big lessons that you've, you've taken along the way? Yeah. So that quick pro- progression was because I was really hungry for it. Um, I, I had a bitter a bit of a bitter chip on my shoulder as well, because I needed to show people that I knew what I was doing, you know? So I ravenously took on new challenges and did it to the best of my ability. I am a, I'm a bit more passionate than I think people should be about their work. Um, my pride is wrapped into <laughs> it, you know? Like yeah. I, it's a bit of a thing where I, I know that I take on this work in an unbalanced way but I really love what I'm doing. I believe that everything that I do has my signature on it. And so anything that I push forward needs to be at the level that reflects who I am and the degree to which I do work. So, Mm -hmm. you know, what that means is that I encounter people who don't see this work in the same way. And it can be a little bit infuriating. And I don't mean about seeing it. I mean, like doing great work if that makes any sense. Right. I really don't care if this is not your passion, but doing horrible work is the quickest way, <laughs> the fastest way to get on my on my bad side, if you will. But <laughs> um, as far as getting into insights and, and accelerating my trajectory, you know, Helen was, and she'll tell you too, like every conversation, informal or formal, it was me saying, what do I need to do? What's the next step? Can you get me into these kind of projects? What's the thing, like what's what's the, the list of priorities we need to tackle here? What haven't I done yet? And how do I get to that level? Put me in front of this client, put me on this kind of a work of this kind of project. Mm-hmm. And Helen was an advocate for me and she definitely did that. The other thing that I really encourage people to do is to have more than one person championing your cause. Mm-hmm. Added value was owned in London, there, are so, there was so much red tape, if you will, to get seen <laughs> in somebody's office in London to ask to get that promotion. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, Helen was a great advocate, but I needed to get other VPs on my side. And so that, that involved me kind of expanding out of my circle. I was a very social person. So we had a lot of visitors from other offices. I wanted to know who was coming in, who you were, people, and I wanted people to know me. You know what I mean? What that ended up um, coming was when it came time to for raises 
and acceleration, when mm-hmm. they'd have these meetings with the core team of VPs and, and, and officers, if you will, my name would be on the tongues of, of more than just Helen. You know, it would be, it would be, um, oh my gosh, I can see his face. It would be Jeff, it would be Steven, it would be um, Carly, it would be Helen, it would be Jonathan, you know, like I'm in the ears of everybody. And not in a, I deserve this, so you need to pay me kind of way, but in a, mm-hmm. I really wanted a life there. You know what I mean? Like I right. believe that I was, a, I was, a good strategic partner at added value. And I wanted them to see that of me. And I, and every, every standpoint, I was like, I, I understand the, the core pillars of the business. I understand where we're trying to go. I think I can help you get there by contributing in these particular ways. So I was very strategic about that. Very hungry. Right. I did it in informal and formal conversations all the time. Cool. That That's uh that's great. Uh, great, uh, great lessons for people to think about as they think about their own careers. So let me switch gears just a little bit here. So uh, you've been on your own for a couple of years, but you've been sort of at the forefront of, uh, you know, kind of the, the growth of, of cultural strategy and semiotics and, and even on the brand side. So as you think about the future of insights, what are some things that you think are going to be important? Yeah, so I'm increasingly getting requests or creating light bulb moments for the clients who come to me. Um, I'm actually really surprised that so many clients still rely on qual and quant only. Um, The reason people turn their heads at me is because I'm always asking more fundamental questions. You know, Mm -hmm. what do you really know about your category? And let's talk about this in a way that doesn't put all the weight on the shoulders of consumers who only know so much. Like you're a consumer, Matt, I'm a consumer. We know what's in our world, you know? When clients ask these long strategic questions of what's the future of this space? Consumers don't know that, you know? Like (laughs) it's not their job to know that. Consumer insight should be used to identify unmet needs and those key emotional things that we need to connect with, sure. But cultural insights should be used really, really understand a topic or idea, concept or category in a way that traces its origins over time so that we can begin to understand the patterns for how it might develop in the future. And that's a lot of my work. I'm essentially a historian and researcher (laughs) uh, because a lot of my work is front loaded at the beginning of the project of actually let's take a step back and and figure out what we know about the history of luxury in the United States and how that might differ from Western luxury norms or right. what we know about Western, um, Eastern, uh, sorry, Eastern, um, sorry, European luxury and mm-hmm. how that might differ from North America. Let's talk sure. about the history of identity formation in the United States and what that means for different multicultural groups. Let's talk about the history of home ownership and what that means for the future of home and appliances. You know, so it's really about taking a step back, doing a bit of a history lesson and applying that information to the consumer lens of, well, this is what we know. Let's talk about how to ask better questions for our consumers so we can build upon that information. And -hmm. at the end of that, potentially use semiotics to talk about what this might show up as, what this means for our packaging, our messaging, our language and how we come to market. Yeah. I really love that, uh, the, the notion of to understand the future of research or any sort of category, you really need to understand the history. So 
really, really interesting stuff. So you had mentioned before how Insights and Color got started uh, while you were at Added Value. Can you talk a little bit about where that organization is today? Yeah, sure. So the organization or the idea or concept have gotten tabled after I left Added Value. And uh, especially ah. my, my time at when I was with Kelton got really <laughs> used up. And so I had no time to do anything else. Uh, when I started Touch of Wit, it was right before the pandemic um, hit. And so once the pandemic hit at the beginning of 2020, I was out of work for about nine weeks, which I got to be honest, I enjoyed a little too much. I started, <laughs> I started questioning, like, maybe I don't like to work all the time. You know? <laughs> um, but in that nine weeks, what happened was um, the murder of George Floyd. And right. what, what ended up happening was people just reaching out to me. Do you know any black and brown researchers? We're really trying to make a change. We want to kind of come at this in a different light, in a different way. And unfortunately, I didn't know any black and brown researchers, but my time had not permitted myself to really engage with or meet other researchers of color while I was in the field for the nine or 10 years that I'd been doing research. I, think I came across them here and there, but we never got chances to like, you know, converge. I, I, research is just a busy industry. I didn't have time to make those connections and have those relationships. So it kind of dawned on me. I was like, you know, maybe this is the time to bring back insights and color. And I can do it under the guise of my own company with my own um, agenda, if you will, doing it in a way that really feels like it's me, you know? Um, and so I did this kind of, Looking back on it, it was a little crazy. I'm not going to lie. I just kind of announced it on LinkedIn. You know, I think I'm going to bring that's That's exactly what I said. And I started getting all of these kudos. I, in that nine weeks, I, I started writing more. So I started gain, gaining a following of people kind of following what I was saying, if you will. Right. So when I announced it. Uh, my LinkedIn went kind of crazy. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I should probably put out a survey to say, you know, what this should look like. I basically put the survey out, built the website in two days and um, started recruiting for board members. <laughs> I, like, I'm not, I can't do all this work. I'm not even interested in doing all these things. You know, like, right. not, not every single area here is my passion area, but it, there's a passion for it in the industry. And so yeah. I took those answers and created uh, three particular pillars that we operate around in five different task forces. The first joiners are people who were just kind of in my ear saying, let's talk about this. I want to talk about where this is going to go and what we're going to do and what this is going to look like. I want to talk to you about what I'm passionate about. And those conversations led to being to them being put on task forces. And today we have 17 tasks, uh, 17 board members, um, mm -hmm. 11 advisory council members, and we are steadily working to really change the industry from the inside out. Our standpoint is that we're not a typical diversity initiative or organization, we really believe that the industry was built incorrectly and we need to course correct for that. You know, the, the industry historically was built around white, um, white men because they were the population seen as having the money at the time when market research was being developed. It eventually shifted towards um, white women because uh, marketers quickly realized that they held the purse strings in their homes um, but it was never really built around or for multicultural consumers because we were thought to not have money or to not spend in a way that that merited any type of research or insights, you know? Right. And so the way that people approach us now, it's all new. Everyone has all these questions. How do I talk to black and brown people? And how do I do it in a way that's authentic? And 
how do I make sure it's reflected in my research? All of this is still new for us because as identity is evolving, right? So are the parameters for how we do research, who we speak to and who we need to know more about, if you will. So people come to Insights in Color for a lot of those questions. We're trying to create the tools and the measures and put them into the marketplace so everyone's not calling me all the time, if you will, and yeah. say, this is the future of the space. This is what we need to do. And this is how we're trying to disrupt the industry. While also doing some of the lower hanging fruit things of ensuring you know, job board placements and um, trying to create the solutions for diversity within teams and everything like that. So we're a wide reaching organization with a lot of hands on a lot of different parts. Oh, that's, that's great. That's great. Cool. Well, um, I know that uh, there's an event coming up this evening that I'm going to check out as well. So <laughs> although this will air later, so okay. uh, <laughs> we won't call it out right now, but uh, no, it's, it's great. Um, so since this is a podcast, right, and I'm sure you've been on podcasts or maybe listened to other podcasts or other media, Curious to know what you listen to in your spare time. Can be professional, can be personal, or read, or or whatever. What what media is capturing your attention? Oh my goodness! You know, it's so funny. I had this epiphany that I'm I'm a music I'm a music lover because it usually speaks to my moods. But I've been so busy that I haven't been able to listen to anything. Um, but music is usually my thing. I love R and B. Uh, I love anything where I can sing out loud in the shower. So <laughs> if it's too lyrically complicated, then I usually don't get into it. Moody music is is my thing. So right now, um, Jasmine Sullivan has a new album out, so I've been listening to that. Um, but a lot of uh, music by her or Gibeon or Jasmine Sullivan are kind of like the moody R&B, the slow music, sometimes the relationship breakup stuff, which I really yeah. can't do, but it just makes me feel some kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. emote if you will but for the most part I've been binge watching a lot of television I uh, one of the reasons often environments don't always work for me is because I need things to happen in the background including right. so um, a lot of times I'm watching either new shows or old shows so for a long time I was watching Game of Thrones in the background just because I knew it um, and I know it very well. I've watched it several times since the pandemic has started all the way through. Let's do it I, again. I know. <laughs> you know, and let's leave disappointed at the last uh, <laughs> Same thing for, I just finished watching Homeland for the first time, which was also a great show at the beginning and a disappointment at the end. So <laughs> I'm doing a lot of that as well. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, you mentioned you enjoy music, right? Yeah. So uh, I'm going to have to leave you with this last question. It's a very important question, perhaps the most important one uh, of this interview. So <laughs> you're stranded on a desert island, right? You have three records uh, of your choice to keep you company for the rest of your days. What are they? <laughs> well, I guess I can't bring my sad music because I don't think I can make it off the island. Or I can't, <laughs> it, can't, it can't only be that, right? So it would have to be something that makes me dance um, a little bit in a... I guess, in a, for lack of a better word, in a ratchet way. So it would be like a Cardi B, <laughs> the stallion kind of a thing. Um, something that I can kind of let loose on. Then it would probably be a little bit of a moody situation. So maybe a Gideon or a Her or a SZA, if you will. Um, and the third one, I don't know. Maybe a, a good classic, probably like a Lauryn Hill. Um, yeah. or, or an old, so some old R&B, whether that's um, Drew Hill or... Or something like that, but probably Lauren Hill. That's that's probably a miseducation of Lauren Hill's a classic. So yes, in, yeah. indeed it is. Indeed <laughs> it is. Excellent. 
Uh, well, this has been such a fun conversation, Whitney. I really appreciate it. Uh, love to hear your story and all of the ins and outs. Uh, and it's great to be connected with you and really appreciate your time. So uh, hopefully uh, once this pandemic is done, we'll get a chance to see each other in person and uh, we can catch up then. So uh, in the meantime, rock and roll. Rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,